Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Alessio Fasano about gluten, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, the gut microbiome, and autoimmune conditions. Dr. Fasano led the research team that discovered and named zonulin, an enzyme in the gut that is activated in response to gluten. And we talk all about the importance of this in relation to health in general and who needs to be mindful of this response and of gluten in their food. And we also talk about other pillars of health that impact on the gut. Importantly, Dr. Fasano emphasizes that for most people, it isn't one trigger that sets off the immune response. It is multiple factors that need to be present. And we talk about this and a whole host of other things in this fascinating interview with Dr. Fasano. I felt so privileged to be able to speak to him. He is amazing. So Dr. Alessio Fasano has dedicated his life to improving the quality of life for people with celiac disease and other gluten-related disorders. He founded the Centre for Celiac Research at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in 1996. In 2013, he moved the centre to Massachusetts General Hospital and renamed it the Centre for Celiac Research and Treatment. He is the Chief of the Division of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition at Mass General Hospital for Children and a Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Fasano is the author of Gluten Freedom, a book for general readers about celiac disease, gluten-related disorders, and the gluten-free diet. He also co-authored Gut Feelings, The Microbiome and Our Health, and this was published in March 2021. And we have a bit of a discussion in and around the book itself, but of course, the things that we talk about in today's interview sort of expand beyond that and touch on a lot of what his research across the course of his career has really looked at. I have links to Dr. Fasano where you can find him uh, and where you can find his books as well in the show notes. And before we crack on into the interview, I'd just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit subscribe on the platform you listen to your podcasts on. This increases the exposure that Wikipedia has out there amongst the thousands of other podcasts that are released weekly. The more exposure we get, the more opportunity people get to benefit from the information that my guests, such as Dr. Fasano, share with us, and that would just be amazing. All right, team, I hope that you enjoy the conversation that I have with Dr. Alessio Fasano. Dr. Fasano, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I have been aware of your uh, work for a number of years now, and I'm really excited to um, have a chat to you about autoimmunity, the microbiome, gluten, and and all the things. Um, can you just sort of give us a little bit of a brief background as to your professional experience and also your interest in autoimmunity and how that you know sort of has transpired? Yeah. So, Miki, thank you first of all for having me. Um, 
again, you know, science is a, is a journey of serendipity. So I can blame that uh, from the very beginning I want to study autoimmunity, but that's not the truth. It's just that, you know, I was pushing that direction by the way that science was going. Um, this started a long, long time ago when I was studying what I was very much interested in, how microorganisms interact with us and why sometimes this interaction goes in the wrong direction, meaning that they make us sick. And um, specifically, I was studying a bug that was making particularly kids, because I'm a pediatric gastroenterology by training, very sick and die very fast, cholera. Oh, wow. oh yes. And I was developing a vaccine uh, against cholera. There was a total failure because it did not work. So two years of work literally flashed in the toilet because they still have that with this vaccine, but led to the discovery of some other mechanisms that, you know, cholera uses eventually to cause diarrhea that was targeting the permeability of the gut, making the gut leakier and therefore create the condition of more fluid in the gut that the, the vibrio cholera needs to swim out and go to another host. And, you know, um, from there, I reasoned that's strange that we have this complex machinery because we understood how this other, you know, toxin was working just to be the target of um, cholera. And um, we reasoned that probably cholera was mimicking something that we do physiologically. And that led almost 20 years ago to discover a molecule that is called zonulin that increased gut permeability. And of course, as typically we do, we ask, okay, what is the pathology? When, what happened when the system goes out of control? And one of the common denominators in which the zone pathway is upregulated, therefore there is increased gut permeability were autoimmunity. So that's a, a 35 years of journey. <laughs> yes. Minutes. Yeah. Well, you did a fabulous job. Um, <laughs> so, so can we actually um, focus on zonulin for... A, a, a minute, because obviously you discovered it, and as I understand, you named it as well. Um, can what is the importance of this in the gut, and and what activates it? Yeah, so um, for many many years, particularly for for folks that focus on the mechanism of why we develop chronic inflammatory diseases. And we talk not only autoimmunity, but also, I don't know, neuroinflammation, neurodegeneration, cancer, you know, food allergies. These are all conditions that, you know, you have inflammation in your body that make you sick if you're genetically exposed to use this, to, to develop these problems. There's been always a puzzle to understand how you develop these conditions since the paradigm you know, the corollary to develop this condition means that something from the environment come in our body and instigate the immune system to fight and generate inflammation. Under normal circumstances, this does not happen because we have barriers. The one that's visible that we all know is the skin barrier that protect us against the surrounding. And when the skin barrier doesn't work, we develop, you know, um, you know, rash and a series of problems and so on and so forth. But the largest interface is the gut. You know, you take, you know, the gut of an adult, you stretch on the floor, you, you cover a double tennis court. It's huge. Um, and there is a lot of stuff coming through every day. The other thing that is peculiar 
of the gut compared to the skin, for example, that, you know, why the skin have several layers of cells, the gut has only a single layer. So imagine this sort of wall with a single, you know, layer of bricks. And the idea was that in between bricks, there was cement. So everything that comes from an environment in our body has to go through the bricks, i.e. to the cells. And large molecules, the ones that instigate inflammation, cannot come through the cell under normal circumstances. So it was always puzzling how that happened. Until uh, the late 80s, a Japanese group, you know, discovered that actually there's not cement in between the cells. Rather, they're gates. Most of the time closed, but when they open, you know, this space in between cells open up. And this, you know, stuff from the environment can go through. Zonlin tends to be the key that makes this happening. So um, that's how this pretty much, you know, got into the picture of how zoning can be involved in regulation antigen trafficking by altering, and not only the gut barrier, but also the lungs, the blood barrier, and so on and so forth. In terms of what makes zoning to be produced in an excessive amount, so far we found two stimuli that seems to do that. One, an imbalance of the ecosystem of the gut, what we call dysbiosis. If the gut, you know, microbiome goes off balance, is the strongest stimulus to release zonulin and makes this happening. The second stimulus is fragments that come from gluten, this molecule that is offending for people with celiac disease and other gluten-related disorders. You know, gluten cannot be completely digested in a single, you know, elements, amino acids, but there are pieces of, you know, fragmented gluten that we call peptides that are undigested. A mm. couple of them can instigate cells to release zonulin and therefore increase gut permeability. So this is as much as we understand right now. Okay, so everyone has zonulin, and it's not, not zonulin per se that's the problem. It's an excessive amount of, of zonulin that is, okay, that is uh, influenced by either your gut health or just gluten and its sort of peptides that are in, in gluten. That's right, that's right. Mm. And again, even if... Um, you know, the, the, the release of zonulin, no matter if it's due to gluten or the microbiome, is one of the main elements that will make you sick. If you have just that and you don't have a genetic predisposition to develop diseases, you will not. Ah. So the five pillars that seems to be important are genetic predisposition, so you have to have genes that make you, let's say, a risk for breast cancer, okay? Then you have to have something in the environment that is the instigator of the inflammation. Then you have to have an increased gut permeability so this instigator comes in your body. The fourth element that has to be the immune system that becomes hyperbilligerent, so turn on inflammation, it cannot turn it off. And the fifth element is indeed the microbiome, this imbalance that eventually put in motion that genetic predisposition march from predisposition to clinical outcome. That's the way we understand it. And they are highly, highly interconnected. Yeah. And so with regards to autoimmune conditions, Dr. Fasano, are, are these on the rise or are we just much more aware and able to diagnose them now than what maybe we were 20, 30, 40 years ago? Both. Definitely there's been increased awareness and therefore we, we um, are able to diagnose better some of these conditions. But for some autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes, 
you cannot miss it. It's not that it was underdiagnosed because if you don't diagnose these people, they die, of course. So, um, but you know, if you embrace a Western lifestyle, uh, then you are high risk to see this huge increase of you know non-infected chronic inflammatory diseases, including autoimmunity. We we were under the impression. Um, and this was justified by what we call the hygiene hypothesis. So in other words, we are born to be deal with dirt and, and not clean and, you know, being animals in the wild. And now we're too clean for our own goods, and particularly in the Western Hemisphere. And if we do that, we don't allow, you know, um, our immune system to be trained to point weapons against enemies rather than against ourselves, has happened in autoimmunity. And, uh, and that leads to more susceptibility to uh, chronic inflammation. This is partially true, but it's much more complex. There are these five elements, this perfect storm that come all together <clears throat> that eventually start that march from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome. Now, if you look at this phenomenon of increase epidemics of this chronic inflammatory disease, including autoimmunity, is staggering how fast it goes up. And you, you can interpret this phenomenon in two different ways. If you're a pessimistic individual, you say, gee, really, if I embrace a Western lifestyle, I'm, I'm ruining my life because I, I'm accelerating you know, these this conditions that will, will make me out of business in terms of morbidity and, and even mortality. However, you know, if you want to look at the same phenomenon in a more positive way, the old paradigm, if you have the genes for breast cancer, it's destined. You're going to have it. There is nothing you can do about it. That's not true anymore. It really depends how you play your genetic cards. Yeah. If we understand what kind of mistake we've been making in the Western Hemisphere to play this game in a losing way, we can put together remedies to slow down, if not revert this trend. Of of upsoar up uphill, you know, a trend of of autoimmunity, and we we can eventually find, uh, you know, what is the holy grail, the primary prevention. So, um, because the fact that you have the genes is a precondition, as I told you, but you know that's not automatic. The other four factors that I was telling you needs to come up play in order to, you know, eventually um, tra translate this risk in in, in in an active disease. Yeah. And Dr. Fasano, with the hygiene hypothesis, so is it that we, that, uh, do we see differences in autoimmunity depending on where people live? Like if people live much more rurally compared to people who live much more urban? We sure do. Yeah. If you, if you live, you know, in a, in a more rural environment, if you have pets home, um, you know, um, it, it, it probably, the most impactful in nutrition, if you eat natural food, you know, uh, uh, kil um, zero kilometers or in season, whatever is produced and not massive production, you typically tend to be more protected against autoimmunity and chronic inflammatory diseases in general. Um, and again, I believe that it's much more than just the hygiene. It's, it's, it's a little bit more complex, as I was telling you, because all these elements that I just mentioned, you know, where do you live if you have pets home, uh, if you have a rural environment in which you have animals around, and so on and so forth, will impact your microbiome. The microbiome is capable to epigenetically 
change, you know, the, the way that our genes are expressed or repressed and decide if, when, why, and how they are. And that's where the game is all about. Yeah, that's, isn't that, remar- like, that's remarkable to me, just the impact that the microbiome has on sort of all elements of health, essentially. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I wrote this book um, <clears throat> that is called Gut Feelings. Yes. Um, in which, you know, my intro was, you know, we are, as a species, the human species, uh, it's always been extremely curious and um, been exploring for us, it's, it's, it's in our genes. Um we, we start exploring the new world, uh, you know, we, we, we discovered the Americas and then New Zealand and all night yards. <laughs> and then we went to the moon and now we're looking at the stars to see new civilizations that so it's not possible, it's just us. But the most remarkable, you know, um, civilization are those microbes that we live with and, and co-evolve with. That is, they are literally under our nose and we don't see it. Yeah. But they are absolutely remarkable, not only in their complexity, but how they can really dictate the, the, our destiny from developing disease the way that we age, uh, our behavior uh, to uh, eventually, uh, you know, uh, what is going to be our lifespan. I mean, it's mm. just remarkable. Mm. And Dr. Fasano, so first and foremost, like, can we, I guess, talk about the microbiome, how our gut works, and how it gets disrupted? You know, it's because I feel like almost everyone that I speak to in my work as a clinician, or even just sort of conversations that you have, people often talk about gut health or, you know, their gut's not great or, you know, so it's so prevalent. So can we just talk about do the 101, I suppose, on it? That's right. So with the, with the disclaimer that this is a very active and, and dynamic field, yes. every day there are 750, 800 papers on microbiome published. There is no precedent in, 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 in science. The wealth of information come out. Yeah. The way that at least I understand, uh, and again, I want to quote this, it's very personal interpretation, is that Contrary to what we believed before, we are made by two genomes. Our human genome that we inherited from mom and dad, that, you know, it's destiny. If you got the genes to develop any kind of disease, that will come and there isn't there. And then this other genome that is the microbiome, extremely dynamic. While the first one is there, you can change it, but the second change based on a variety of conditions. If that premise that I believe is generally accepted is true, and if our destiny is really dictated by the interaction with the microorganism, then the way that, again, I personally interpret the story is the following. We need to find a friendly relationship with our microbiome, what we call a symbiotic relationship. How we do that? This is based on evolution for 2 million years. The program was, okay, I'm born by vaginal delivery. The vast majority of my microbiome, you know, um, engraftment happened there. Then I'm fed breast milk until I introduce, you know, solid food. 
and then eventually, and I live in a rural wild, and I eat in a certain way. You know, I eat a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetable tubers, nuts. Why? Because uh, gathering this is easy. Um, meat, oh yeah, once in a while, you got to be a good hunter. And this lean meat, because, you know, these animals are trying to escape predators, including human beings. So that's the way that we evolved. Now, why we see this increase of chronic inflammatory diseases? Because that plan, we derailed from that plan. We are born by C-section more than is needed. Of course, if it's in the, clinically indicated, by all means, the alternative, you know, is that you lose mom and, and, and child. We, you don't want to do that. But if this C-section is, is, is implemented so that the OBGYN can plan his or her, you know, vacations, that's not a good way to do it. Um, we feed the kids junk, so they don't eat the way that we used to. And we have now used and abused antibiotics that didn't exist two million years ago. And, you know, again, all this translates the fact that the key first thousand days of life from conception to, you know, two years of life are the ones in which we really decide our destiny way beyond that period. Why? Because it is the microbiome that program the immune system to unleash inflammation. And if we go to the plan of evolution, the microbiome that is being maturing and getting in a, in, in a good relationship with us, because they've been nice finding each other. We all genetically are different. Even monozygotic twins, epigenetically are different. So there is no quote-unquote a normal microbiome. Each of us has this very specific microbiome. So why genetically we're all different? Also, our microbiome is all different. The result of this interaction, on the other hand, has to be the same for everybody. Because the specific metabolic functions that keep my blood pressure in a certain range, the glucose level in a certain range, is the consequence of this interaction. So. In the first two years of life, actually, in the first thousand days of life, that's because it seems that the microbiome and graftum start even during pregnancy. It's debatable, but it looks like that that's the case. Anything that disturbs that searching each other, uh, external elements uh, like you know mom's lifestyle. She's smoking. There are pollution in the air. C-section again. The way that I'm fed. Am I born premature? I'm getting antibiotics. Whatever this, that create that imbalance of the microbiome. And again, you know, if you look at the dynamic, if you don't touch it, it seems to be very chaotic. You know, at the beginning there are some microorganisms, then they leave, then there are some others they come. That's not chaos. It's searching each other, dating, until we find a sweet spot in general by the year two that we find the ideal relationship. If we do that, that microbiome will program the immune system to unleash inflammation only when it's extremely needed. Two million years ago, when we started the journey of evolution as species, we died either of an infection or dinosaur, we eat us. 
life expectancy was 13, 14 years, no time to develop cardiovascular diseases. So the immune system was mainly focused to protect us against inflammation, I mean, against microorganisms. And inflammation was nothing else that created a very hostile environment for microbes to grow. It's too hot. There are chemicals like cytokine that will kill me. There, there are, you know, cells like immune cells that would eat me. Um, but, and you, the tissue that's inflamed dies, but the organism will survive. So that's important why the, the bar for inflammation got to be very, very high. Now, particularly if we are in the Western lifestyle side of the story, doing that programming because of this imbalance due to this derailment by external elements, the bar is put very low. And our programming to do inflammation is done in a way that we unleash it even when it's not extremely needed. And on a specific genetic background, it's a matter of time that we'll break tolerance that we develop a problem. This is a long way to answer why, you know, the, 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 what happened in the gut. In another book I wrote, you know, gut is not like Las Vegas. What happened in the gut doesn't stay in the gut. It really has, you know, repercussion everywhere. Because if there is this imbalance, there is no friendly relationship with our microbiome, we, we pay a dear price. Um, and again, not just in the immediate, you know, if we develop cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, metabolic disorder, Alzheimer's, and so on and so forth, all depends on how we program our immune system through the microbiome during that key period of time. Yeah, so interesting. Dr. Fasano, so if I think about those things in the, thousand, the first thousand days that impact on our gut and our, or our immune system, essentially. So those people who were born through a C-section, are they, are they then just already on the back foot? Like I'm 45, if my mum had a C-section to have me, was, or do we not know that? Or is it just like one, one sort of... You, uh, you are disadvantaged, but it's not the game is over. And the opposite yes. also applies. Yes. If I'm born by vaginal delivery, it's not that I can eat junk and would not have a consequence. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a continuum. So yeah. if you're born by C-section, you're a disadvantage, but that doesn't automatically mean that it's your destiny because, you know, again, you can still play your genetic card correctly by having good lifestyle. Yeah. Exercising, you know, low stress, you know, eating well, a good sleeping hygiene, and, you know, I can go on and on and on, not excessive alcohol, not excessive smoke, and so on and so forth. These are all conditions that, you know, even if you have the bar very low because you were born by C-section and you're exposed to antibiotics and whatever, so you have an imbalanced microbiome, even if the bar is so low, but because of lifestyle, you mitigate the risk. Of course, if the bar is higher, you, you, you're better off. But neither one means that automatically... One, that you don't develop a problem on two, that you automatically will. It's a continuum. It's like, you know, exercise. It's not that you exercise, you know, once a year and now you will be healthy. It's something that you got to keep going and doing. But, you know, I believe that all the elements that I was mentioning, just to say the Western lifestyle, you know, we're born once. Uh, with C-section or vaginal delivery. You can take antibiotics three or four times a year, but we eat three or four times a day. So definitely the most impactful to dictate the composition and the microbiome is diet. If you allow me a parallel, imagine that, you know, um, 
the microbiome is a sort of farm with different animals. So as you have the chicken, you have the horses, you have the cows, you have the sheep and so on and so forth. They eat different things. Two million years ago, we decided that we have to have a farm with a thousand of chicken because we wanted to make eggs. 10 cows would be enough because we need a little bit of meat, a little bit of milk. Um, we want sheep, um, you know, 200 so we can have wood so that we can cover ourselves with something and so on and so forth. And we were feeding accordingly. Now, fast forward to 2022, we eat so bad that we're feeding more the cows and not the, the chicken. Uh, and what is the consequence? Now we have an excessive amount of cows and we don't know what to do with that. And we don't have enough eggs because we don't have chicken around. Out of the metaphor, what I'm trying to say is this balance, it, you really want a diversity of microbes in there that they do, you know, all check each other and they live in a friendly relationship with themselves and with their host. So everybody's happy. But if there is an imbalance in the diet, some of this, you know, um, component of the microbiome will take over and the other would go disadvantaged. So you have what we call dysbiosis. And that translates in unfriendly relationship without an epigenetically can push the button to switch my genes uh, to uh, start that march from genetic predisposition to clinical outcome. Yeah. And so with that gut microbiome and the diversity, I've heard that that is an important feature of a healthy sort of gut microbiome. Are there other features that sort of, because there's not necessarily a normal, but that, that might be a feature of a healthy gut microbiome? Yeah, again, as I told you, this is a work in progress. So for what we understand right now, diversity is good. You want a diverse microbiome. What is good for me may not be necessarily good for you, but again, we will understand this a little bit more in details now that the technology is available, that the cost of the technology now is more affordable. I'm pretty sure that we will reach a point in which we can answer your question by saying, oh, you know, because you live in New Zealand, you have that genome and you have that lifestyle, your ideal microbiome is X. Let me take a look where you have. Oh, wow, it's Y. I need to bring this to X by whatever intervention that can be, again, diet, lifestyle, prebiotics, probiotics symbiotics, postbiotics, any biotics that you can imagine, yeah. um, so that I can bring you back where you're supposed to be. Yeah. So pre uh, prebiotics and probiotics, um, and I do want to just ask you a couple of questions about them in a minute. I People are well familiar with them. Symbiotics and postbiotics, though, I think these are terms which we don't hear as often, Dr. Fasano. So what? Okay, so prebiotics is the food that you give the microbes that are good for you so they can be thriving. Probiotics are the good bacteria. Symbiotics, when you have a product, they have both. So let's say that I have classical good prebiotics. It's uh, the, um, the, the sugar in the, in the breast milk, the oligo, one oligosaccharides or unbelievable, great prebiotics. When you have that with a, a strain of probiotic, together it becomes a symbiotic. Postbiotic are products of the do-good bacteria. They are actually, you know, improving my health. For example, butyrate, short-chain fatty acids that are produced by some microorganisms. Those are postbiotics. Yes. 
Okay, and, and of course, I've seen that you can actually take butyrate as a supplement, but also we produce butyrate as a, yeah, from our... That's from right. Our, so yeah. in other words, you can take a postbiotic eye butyrate as yeah. a supplement. That's right. To eventually, you know, integrate with the microorganism in your gut, i.e. your microbiome supposedly should do. Yeah. And if you're in dysbiosis, so you lost those components that produce that in my paralleled the eggs because now the, the chicken are not around anymore yes. then you have to buy the eggs from another farm so yeah. you can have supplements yeah dr fasano how good are the consumer-based tests for microbiome because if it's so dynamic and the in the the gut microbes are so dynamic like if we take if we do a test to sort of establish the balance of bacteria is it that it is trending in the right direction? We have some idea, or can it be exact? What are those tests telling us? Is it worth doing even? Yeah, um, that's a good question. And again, this is what one of the most you know challenging questions to answer in this very dynamic field. There are already companies that they you know analyze your microbiome at a relatively affordable price. And they tell you, oh, you are in good shape or bad shape. And some of them, they go to the next step. Oh, you definitely have imbalance of the microbiome. Here, this product that I'll give you as a remedy of what's going on. I'm confident this can happen, but we don't have that kind of information right now. Because, you know, just to give you a sense, we are dealing with a huge amount of microbes that live in symbiotic relationship with us. They are extremely dynamic. They mutate all the time because they reproduce every 20 minutes. Um, We have a library of good understanding of the bacterial component microbiome, but we have viruses, we have, you know, parasites, we're archaea. So that's much more complicated than we know right now. When we have a grasp of all this, and when, you know, we can make sense of all this, meaning that, you know, now... Doing my genome is relatively simple, but imagine 40 years ago was unthinkable that you can have the entire genome of an individual. Same story. We're lagging back five, six, seven years, depending on your opinion, with the microbiome studies that comes to its genomic component, what we call metagenomics. Um, when we will have that, and we will have mathematical modeling to say, okay, you know, I have 23,000 genes. I have 100 times more genes for the microbiome. Where are all the computations that will keep me healthy? And where are the computations? Uh, you know, let's say that you have three zillions of possible, you know, computation here uh, that are much more than that. Of, of this, where are the 500,000 computation inter- interaction that will make me sick that I need to avoid? And the rest is fine. When I got that, now we have an answer. But, you know, you can't study this outside the other omics. I just mentioned the, the, the genomics. But, you know, you need to look at your metabolites because ultimately it's this interaction will produce metabolites that actually will control some functions that will keep me healthy or will make me sick. The proteomics, what kind of proteins will be produced by this genomic switch of the microbiome on my genes and how they impinge on my health? the lipidomics, and, you know, I can go up with many other omics. And this put in the context of who am I, where I live, what is my lifestyle. When you compute all these variables in there, you will realize 
as I typically say to my students, that you have almost an infinite variability of, of possibility there because the genome of the human being is like a piano with 23,000 notes. Can you sing, you know, are you, um, you know, uh, limited to only 23,000, you know, tunes? Absolutely not. The piano player that is in the microbiome can play one, two, all 23,000 with a certain rhythm, with a different frequency. Uh, so it's infinite, the, the outcome, the, the kind of music that will come out of there. It depends who sits, you know, your piano and what kind of music they play. And the music is the, 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 the metabolic pathways that will control my you know, by the functions. So all this to say, once we got all this, then we can answer the question, is that worth it analyzing my microbiome to understand, am I good? I'm not good. What should I do about it? Why would I get there? And we will. Common sense is to live a good lifestyle that will not stress my microbiome. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. That, and that does make perfect sense. And with respect to... If you do, how does someone know if they have gut dysbiosis beyond gut-related symptoms, you know, things that you actually feel digestively, or is that the best way to assess this? What other things are sort of associated in your experience, Dr. Pisano? So it's not just GI symptoms. You know, again, you, you may have GI symptoms with little or no dysbiosis, and you can be completely silent clinically in your GI tract and you have dysbiosis. So the clinic would not help me. Um, so, uh, you know, again, um, I can tell you that there are people with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, um, that they have no GI symptoms, but they are completely in disarray with their microbiome. And there are people that they have, you know, um, some functional disorder GI tract, like irritable bowel syndrome, they may not have dysbiosis. So um, th there is no clear clinical red flag that would tell me, mm, I better check my microbiome. It's just the opposite. Meaning, because I have seen in the literature that people with rheumatoid arthritis may have dysbiosis, I better check my microbiome if I have RA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, I know that some people with cancer will respond to anti-cancer therapy more efficiently than others because the microbiome, if I don't respond to that specific treatment, I better check my microbiome. That's more likely the way that we're going to do this for what we define a personalized medicine. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, yeah. But, of course, as I told you, um, primary prevention for me is very dear. If we made a mistake in the past, if we understand what mistake we made, maybe that we can intercept the disease before that the onset. And there's a lot of, we are in the midst of one of these projects with celiac disease, um, the project is called CDGEM, and a second one on autism is called GEMMA, to do exactly that. So we follow from birth these kids, taking advantage that both diseases materialized rather early in life, and we want to see what are the deviation of microbiome that systematically we see before the onset of the disease in those that end up to develop the problem compared to the one that did not? I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is my point of attack that eventually I can go after that can allow me to correct 
you know, the, the, the journey of the microbiome of this kid so that he or she would not break tolerance to gluten or God knows what else in autism so that they don't develop this, you know, inflammatory process anymore. So that, that it's something that is doable, but will require, once again, modeling, artificial intelligence that will tell me, oh, if you have these five strains that are not there anymore, you have 92% chance to develop in a year celiac disease, put these five strains back there. Yeah, yeah. And is it with the probiotics that we see on the shelf, are they, do they make a big difference to our overall gut health, given the dynamic nature of, of our gut? And I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, you know, it's not because they are not, a f- well, first of all, um, you know, the, the, the entire field is poorly regulated for a simple reason, that rules from Europe and United States, if you want to treat, ameliorate, or prevent the disease, you have to go through the scrutiny of drug development. So you have to do a clinical trial. Producers of probiotics, they want to avoid that because it's a lot of money that you have to put on the table. So they promulgate the use of probiotics as improving health. So not making any claims, but say, these are good for you, meaning that I can sell this in the supermarket, the pharmacy, whatever, you know, these probiotics without the scrutiny to make sure that, you know, they are really helpful in mitigating, you know, disease A, B, or C. Um, the other corollary of this problem is they are not controlled. So sometimes probiotics, they don't contain enough strains because you have to have billions of, of, of strains in there. They can be unstable over time because these are live organisms and they can die. Um, they can have pathogens in there because there's no controls. Um, and, you know, again, um, I'm not trying to dispute their validity. I'm pretty sure that, you know, some of them, they may have validity. But again, it's a short in the dark because if, if let's say that, you know, I have a dysbiosis and I have, you know, um, uh, let's say dermatitis, and you have a dermatitis as well, and you have your dysbiosis. And I see on the shelves a probiotics X that help me to mitigate my skin rash. That may be good for me if I lost that particular strain, yes. but not good for you that you didn't lose that strain. You lose another strain with the same clinical outcome. Yeah. So that's not the way to go. Uh, if we want to use anything that's already in the market, it would be better to use a product with multiple strains. At least you increase your chance of the right target. And even better is to use natural products. A good yogurt in which you know there are fresh probiotics there, there are many strains and so on and so forth, is probably better than a formulation that you have to buy on the shelves. You know, um, you know it, that, that would be my sense. And... You mentioned before about how zonulin can, or an excessive amount of zonulin can be produced with gut dysbiosis. And then, of course, zonulin can be overproduced for people who have a, an insensitive, or who are sensitive to gluten, not necessarily just celiac, but people who are sensitive to gluten. If you fix the dysbiosis and the zonulin, and the zonulin um, is then therefore just produced in normal amounts, then 
gluten doesn't necessarily feature. Is that is that right? Like so, is there? Yeah, so people who might think they're gluten intolerant might, in fact, actually just have a gut dysbiosis that once they fix, actually they're not gluten That's intolerant. That's right. So that- bottom line, again, you need all five pillars to develop any problem, including gluten sensitivity. You have to have the genetic predisposition for gluten sensitivity. You need to eat gluten. You have to have a barrier that doesn't work anymore to dissolve or any other mechanism. You have to have the immune system that also is not working right, and you have to have this biosis. you got to have them all. It's not just a gluten that increased zonin that's, that's a done deal. Because even if, hypothetically, I have gluten, the gluten increased gut permeability via zonin. Now I am in your body. What happened to me depends what my genes are doing. And if you don't have this biosis, the genes that will make me reactive about gluten may not have been activated. So nothing happened. But if you do have this biosis and these genes have been activated, now you have that problem that will eventually create the condition of inflammation. And then you have also other genes that when you turn on inflammation, doesn't turn off anymore. So the hyperbelligerence immune system becomes part of the story. Yeah, okay. And do you know, Dr. Fasano, I know quite a few people who in adulthood have been diagnosed with celiac and, and the description is silent celiac. So obviously, as, as you've just said, they need all five of these uh, pillars to be present and activated in order for that to happen. But how does someone go for like 40 years without realizing that they have celiacs? disease we we thought that that was the case not anymore again the silent celiac disease exists we know this through studies with relatives they are higher risk that we fall over time and then at some point they have positive serology they have damaged the intestine but the symptoms are not there yet and this is explained because the target organ it's very long it's 10 meters long and if you have only a few inches inflamed a few few centimeters inflamed you may not have symptoms but as the disease progresses you will yes but but the cases that develop celiac disease after 40 years are not silent celiac disease and we know this is a fact because we follow thousands of people at risk over time and some of these people they have negative serology negative endoscopy for 30 40 years so they were eating gluten, they were, the genes were there, but they did not have the problem at all. Meaning, again, that there were not the five elements all there quite yet. Yes. So you, they were eating gluten, they had the genes, but they were not activated to do anything. Um, you know, they may have, you know, or not increased permeability, but the microbiome was not as balanced. And therefore, epigenetically, these genes are not put in motion yet. So these are people that they, these are the people that if, indeed, if they understand what done wrong in terms of composition microbiome, they may never develop celiac disease rather than develop one they are 40 or 50. Yeah, interesting. And do you know, that actually just reminds me of something I used to hear a few years ago was because, of course, there are many people who would avoid gluten, not because they were celiac, but because they had heard, you know, a lot of bad, you know, uh, uh, that it wasn't good to eat. So they would avoid gluten. Then they wouldn't feed their children any gluten from the get-go. 
And then someone, and I remember seeing it reported, well, first and foremost, that you should expose your children to gluten so they develop antibodies against it. I don't know. This is just what you hear. Uh, but then that was disputed. So what is yeah. the... Can you sort of Unfortunately, light on the that? people that promulgate this idea that everybody needs to be gluten-free, otherwise we'll be extinct as a species, they always quote our work as backup for that kind of statement. It's not true. You know, as I said, and I'm so sorry to repeat myself. No, I like it. You know, eating gluten that causes increased permeability in everybody is not enough to develop problems at all. You got to have the other elements to do that. As a matter of fact, you know, an antigen trafficking can be a good thing. So the immune system will know what is the surrounding and get ready to be fighting. Of course, if you have the other elements, i.e. the genetic predisposition, the increased gut permeability, the immune system is not working right, the epigenetic pressure or dysbiotic microbiome and so on and so forth, then that's a problem. But, you know, the, 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 not everybody has all these five elements. So there, it's not justifiable that, you know, People, they need to be maintained gluten-free because, a priori because it's, it's poison for you. If it was not for gluten, meaning agriculture, you and I were still jumping from a tree another and being, <laughs> you know, chimpanzees and not human beings. You know, yeah, we unleash our creativity because the 90% of time that we invested in food procurement has been freed up to do other creative stuff. Yeah, 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 completely. Um, now, Dr. Fasano, you've done a lot of work in non-celiac gluten sensitivity and you and I've heard you speak about it before that it is a thing like it's an actually a, a thing that people do you know that that some people do have I feel like it's not a very well understood concept because a lot of doctors and, and health professionals are like well if you're not celiac then you don't need to worry at all about avoiding gluten but I know plenty of people who have symptoms related to eating gluten-containing products and are not celiac. So why is there this almost, um, um, you know, uh, backlash against? <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I was among the doctors that say, if you don't have celiac disease, you don't have a business to be on a gluten-free diet because, you know, that's what we were taught. Um, but the beauty of science is that, you know, that change every two years. So the truth of today is garbage in two years from now. Um, <laughs> and there is nothing worse than the physician or the investigator that does not have the open-mindedness to appreciate that things are dynamic. And I was, you know, convinced by my patients because I, you know, they, I said, you know, look for something else. They came back and said, true, I'm not celiac. But guess what? The only thing that keeps me healthy is a gluten-free diet. You know, call me whatever, but I stick with the program. That's how this story all started. And I don't think there is people now, they are experts in the field, and the vast majority of people that read the literature will not dispute that we have a spectrum of gluten-related disorder. There is the autoimmune you know, problem with celiac disease, there is the allergic problem with, with allergy, and there is this other non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So I don't think that this is disputable anymore. And ultimately, I'm not here to win a, 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 a contest to be right or wrong. I'm here to take care of patients, whatever it takes. And, you know, maybe that, you know, non-celiac gluten sensitivity is not a well-defined you know, um, entity mainly because we don't have a biomarker as we have with celiac disease and, and, and with allergy. But 
for the time being, until we find something to define better these people, the only way that we have is to say, okay, you have a trouble gluten, meaning that you're sick when you eat it and you are better when you do not. If I exclude celiac disease and with allergy, I call you non-celiac gluten sensitivity until I find a better way to define you. That's yeah. pretty much what it is. Yeah, yeah. No, that and that makes perfect sense. And in practice, it is that sort of elimination approach is almost a gold standard for a lot of these sort of food sensitivities where there's no yeah. definitive sort of biomarker. Um, Dr. Fasano, obviously you're Italian, obviously, and yet you're in Boston. Like, are there differences now? I don't know how long it's been since you've been to Italy, but like, do you look at the food supply in your um, and where you live now versus like how you were growing up, or just even in Italy today? Like, how different is it? Out of interest, uh, I would say very different. You know, when I was growing up, first of all, I was raised with what was called the poor diet. We were of a humble origin; we couldn't afford to eat meat every day. Um, not that I miss it, but, you know, for us, it was a feast where we had meat, you know, once every week, maybe 10 days. Um, but what was our diet? A lot of fruits, vegetables, you know, legumes, pasta, and so on and so forth. What we call the Mediterranean diet, um, you know, fish that you, you, you all local, all in season. Um, now, even in Italy, but for, for example, a product typical of New Zealand, kiwi, I never saw it until you know a few years ago when i was growing up there was no such a thing the most exotic fruit that we have was were bananas they came you know from north africa not far from where we are so but still that was very exotic but you know um strawberries july and august strawberries in in february nonsense yeah you know now I, I believe that the major problem that we're seeing with the food supply have been these three dramatic changes, you know, epochal changes in, in human life. Advent of agriculture 10,000 years ago, domesticating crops. Now, again, this was a key passage for evolution, by the way. But, you know, we do not use natural product anymore, but we domesticate the products. Yeah. Urbanization. When people they start to move in the cities, now they were consumers. But you know, the the when I grew up, very not when I grew up, but I remember that my grandfather and his grandfather, they were farmers. Say they produce their own needs and they exchange with other farmers for other products so that they have everything they need. Um, everybody was producing stuff for their own needs in terms of food. When you have people, they go to the cities and do other jobs. Now they are consumers. So farmers, they need to produce for themselves because they still need that. And they sell the product to the folks that are not producing anymore. So you have to step up a different way to produce your goods, you know, and and again, techniques they change. You have to use chemicals to avoid that you waste, you know, your produce and so on and so forth. But the third and most impactful, almost the kiss of death, in my humble opinion, major revolution has been, you know, the globalization. You know, new multinational, you know, um, um, you know, companies that take the monopoly of the production of some of the food that we eat. And when you have the large productions, quality always suffers for many, many, many reasons. 
Um, and, 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 you know, uh, again, it's a long way to answer your question. Yeah, we eat very differently, um, not only here in Boston, but also um, in, in, in Italy. And, and again, this is part of the consequence of Western lifestyle. There is a revival, I have to say, um, in, you know, prizing, you know, local f- stuff coming from local farmers, organic food and so on and so forth, grass-fed beef and that kind of stuff. But, you know, once again, paradoxically, that was the way that we eat when we have no means, right? It was the, the, the diet of the poor. Now, this is the mm. diet of the wealthy. It is. If I have five, you know, dollars a day and I'm a single mother with two kids, guess what? I'm not going to buy fruit and vegetables. I'm going to buy food that will fill the belly of my kids. Yeah, for sure. And... Dr. Fasano, the the first of all, you mentioned local a few times, and outside of obviously carbon footprint reasons, and I don't think that's necessarily. Oh, actually, I don't know. Maybe that is why you're saying it. But is it something to do with with where we grow our food and the and the microbes in the soil? Of course. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so and yeah. so it's sort of geographical. Well, imagine this. Okay, to stick with the gluten, I wheat that is produced in Ukraine. Okay needs to be produced in a certain way. I don't know if they put chemicals so that, because if you lose 5% of the product, that's an economic disaster. They go in these big containers. They have to cross the ocean and they come to me. Imagine how many steps these grains need to go through and bring me a microbiome that is not mine, acquire another microbiome in the container, uh, coming over here uh, that will be used Process in a certain way, some anti-cryptogenic or anti-fertilizers you know, that are in the, in the soil now are in the, in the actual you know, grain. This is all stuff that was not part of what was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. And you mentioned organic. So if we had the means, would your recommendation be to buy organic where we can? Well, you know, when if you mean for organic again, grass-fed beef, uh, you know, uh, free, ra- you know, uh, chicken that you know they're out, and so free caged chicken and so on and so forth. I think that definitely would be worthwhile if you buy organic water. Yeah, uh, that's a scam. Yeah, okay, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. It makes sense. No, no makes I'm sense. saying organic water because people they sell organic water. Oh goodness, okay, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, and then finally, Dr. Fasano, um, I know that over the last couple of years, or at least I've seen on PubMed, you've published a lot around COVID and yeah. um, and the potential um, relationship between with our immune system, our gut. Um, can you just have spend a couple of minutes talking about what you're looking at and, and some of the information that you're finding? So, you know, again, uh, the, one of the most puzzling parts as soon as we locked down for COVID and repurposed all our research on COVID was why kids are not in, involved. You know, at the beginning, they seem to be spared. And this is unusual for a, a viral infection. The first one, the contracted viral infection of kids. But they were not, you know, uh, in our hospitals. They seem to be immune. And then we realized that that was not the case. And through that, we also realized that the virus cycle of SARS-CoV-2 is, yes, the port of entry is the nose, but they stay there for a few days, very few days. And then for the old elderly, they can go all the way down to the 
lower highways in the lungs and they can kill you. But they find the biological niche in the GI tract. That's where they sit for weeks, if not for months, both in adults and kids, and cause dysbiosis and cause release of zonulin. And this will cause, in a subgroup of kids, a, you know, the, the leaking of some of the elements of SARS-CoV-2, including spike in the bloodstream. And that creates the condition to make the immune system to go bananas, to generate the cytokine storm, develop complications like COVID, long COVID, or the multi-organ um, inflammatory system in children of MIS-C. So all this, in other words, is once back again, dysbiosis, increased antigen trafficking, and creating the problem. And now we have two clinical trials, one on MIS-C, the other one on long COVID, to try to mitigate all this by blocking zonulin. Yeah. Okay. That's super interesting. And when you were looking at all of the recommendations around how, from a public health perspective, what we were told about how to keep us well from COVID. Was any part of you thinking, if only they gave some advice on gut health? Yeah, no, again, this, we were part of the syndicate of the situation. So we were aware that, you know, um, you know, a lot of people with long COVID have GI symptoms. A lot of these kids with MISI, they do. But the fact that we look at where, where, where this virus sits, we cannot find the airways, we cannot find the blood. And yet, you know, months, uh, weeks after, you can develop this complication. Where is the virus? And it was only a matter of logical thinking that we're looking the largest reservoir we have, and sure enough, was there, and sure enough, was creating dysbiosis. Yeah, and at, and ultimately, it does come back to a, to a lot of what you've discussed today. In that, yes, there are things that we can't control, but there are things within our control. Hopefully, in the diet Absolutely. and the lifestyle piece, that's really important in terms Absolutely. of our overall risk. Yeah, 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 indeed. Who pays the most price in morbidity and mortality COVID-19? People that had preconditions that can control with their behavior. Obesity, cardiovascular disease, you know, metabolic disorders like type 2, diabetes, and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, amazing. Dr. Fasano, thank you so much for your time this morning. I feel like we've done a bit of a whirlwind tour on, <laughs> on, on your work, and I could talk to you for hours. Um, can you let um, the audience know where they can find your books and your most recent one, Gut Feeling, from I think, I believe it was 2021 that you published? That's um, right. That was a really a major undertaking because of the dynamic of the field. But some of the principle about microbiome health are there. So, so if you want to expand a little bit of what you heard in this hour, uh, gut feeling is definitely the way to go. But parenthetically, we don't make any money with that. Whatever you know, revenue is all for going for research. Yeah, amazing. And so is that just on your website? On Well, you can find an Amazon anywhere. Perfect. So if you Google, you know, good feeling, Alessi Fasano, you will find it anywhere. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, of course, in the show notes, we will put a link to your research publication so people can find out more of that and, of course, to your books as well. Dr. Fasano, thank you so much. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you, Mickey, for having me. Alrighty. Awesome guy, honestly. And I also just really loved hearing uh, him speak, actually, being Italian, and hearing sort of how the, the diet changes that we talked about in the interview 
uh, the Western diet, sort of the US diet, versus you know his traditional growing up diet, and also what the diet's like in Italy now. Anyway, as I said, links to his books and also where you can find Dr. Fasano can be found in the show notes. Next week on the podcast, I speak to Australian Marty Kendall from Optimizing Nutrition, all about the tools he's created to help thousands of people optimize the nutrients in their diet, data-driven fasting and what that even is, the effect of dietary fat on insulin, and so much more. You do not want to miss that. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or jump onto my website and sign up to the Mondays Matter waitlist so you get early notification of when Mondays Matter schedule registration begins. It is in a few weeks. You do not want to miss out. It is bigger and better than ever before. Otherwise, you can also book a one-on-one consult with me, sign up to one of my real food nutrition plans or other self-directed fat loss plans, the ones that you do at your own pace, all with the support of me behind you. All right, guys, that is at mickeywillardin.com and I will catch you next week.